this church and this preacher and all that's been going on here and through his ministry. I don't like to take other people's word for anything, pro or con, so I want to look into it myself. <laughs> and I have. Now I can talk. <laughs> and it's going to be good. <clears throat> Guarantee you that. We've just had a great time. The Lord's been with us. I heard about a dear brother down over our way in the deep south who got into one of these meetings one night where he just walked about in Zion and next morning he went back and they asked him to lead in prayer. He never had got down from the mountain top yet. And he said, Lord, we thank you for that great meeting last night. I said, I never was in such a meeting. He said, we just thank you, Lord, for giving us such a good time. And he said, Lord, you just ought to have been there. <laughs> well, He's been here, thanks the Lord. And uh, I tell you, the memory of this is going to stay with me. Uh, I remember in Elmhurst, Illinois, a suburb of almost of Chicago, years ago, was in a meeting, and in the last service, we were, you know, making our little bread and butter speech of how we appreciated what everybody had done. And the song leader endeavored to make his, and it seems that he'd had dinner on Thursday before at the home of the organist. And he meant to say that the memory of that occasion would stay with him a long time, but he didn't quite get it said that way. He said, I had dinner with me so-and-so last Thursday, and I can still taste it. <laughs> well, the memory of this will linger with me, and I'll, I'll taste it for a long time, I assure you. I do appreciate and will appreciate your prayers. I've... Uh, had a year now of another phase of ministry all alone again. No family, no children, and dear one with the Lord, no home of my own. Back where I started. And I need a lot of prayer at 73 to keep navigating, but God is able, and I feel more than I've ever felt in my life, the help of Christian people all over this land. The last year has given me a new appreciation for the fellowship and prayers of God's people. And these precious letters that have been pouring in from all directions since I tried to write that little book out of all this has tied me up with a lot of suffering people all over this land with broken hearts. And I always tried to comfort people, but uh, I hadn't been there. And there are some things you don't know about that you've been there. Now some dear soul will come up and shake my hand with tears in their eyes and not say a word sometimes. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> they mean I've been there, brother. So, pray for me. I'm getting older, but that's all right. That's inevitable. I was down in Florida some time ago with my bird watcher, you know, sitting out there on the porch with a cardinal up in the tree singing, and that rascal sounded like he was just saying, Gentile, Gentile, Gentile. I said, shut up. I know I'm getting older, but uh, I need a lot of prayer. Uh, old Dr. R.G. Lee, I was over in Huntsville some time ago, and they told me he'd been there a few months before and preached that payday Sunday sermon and blacked out while he was preaching. Well, they brought him to, and the men take him to his room and said, No, 
I want to finish this sermon. I want one more crack at Jezebel. <laughs> That's why he's still preaching while some fellows have gone to sell an insurance. The text is Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old path, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Sometimes when I get weary over this much ado about nothing, I like to go back along the lanes of memory to the little country church of my boyhood days. In reverie, I like to sit once more in the Amen corner while they sang Amazing Grace and Brethren We Have Met to Worship. Some of those singers wouldn't have passed muster at a radio or TV audition, but they could make a joyful noise under the Lord. The sermon followed. It was long and loud. I didn't hear but two sermons a month in those days, but they were long enough to last a month. But those preachers weren't wearing themselves out to trying to be bright, brief, breezy, and brotherly. Modern sermons appear to me not to have gained any depth for the loss in length. It was plain preaching, sin black, hell hot, judgment certain, eternity long, and salvation free. They could preach it like it is because they believed it like it was. You can't preach it like it is if you don't believe it like it was. And they didn't hesitate to announce such fearful texts as he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck <clears throat> shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. That's a text that's been in the mothballs for a long time. It scared my daddy clear into the kingdom of God. I'd rather scare him into heaven than lull him into hell. And those old preachers knew both the goodness and the severity of the Lord, and knowing the terror of the Lord, they persuaded men. They tell us now that we need a new lingo, that we must get a, an idiom that the age can understand. Used to be a problem, now it's a hang-up, whatever that is. Used to be a blessing, and now it's a meaningful experience. We must be relevant and communicate and dialogue in the now and uh, seek fulfillment in involvement and get down to the nitty-gritty. They used to call it itch, now they call it allergy, but you scratch just the same. <laughs> then they sang... They stood up and sang, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, come ye wounded, sick and sore. And they came to the mourner's bench, confessing their sins. That was before sin had become inhibited pleasure and arrested development and biological growing pains. They still believed in the depravity of the human heart. I heard of a faithful old preacher who preached on that some time ago when somebody came up after the benediction and said, I just can't swallow this. Depravity of the human heart you've been preaching about. The old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it. It's already in you. <laughs> so we've got it, whether we like it or not. We believed that we were punished 
for our sins as well as by them in those days. And we cried about it because sin was bad enough to cry over. And when we got converted, we shouted, for the devil had no monopoly on enthusiasm. About the only shouting I hear now generally is some lunatic demonstration when somebody gets a fur coat on a TV show. I know it's easier to paint a brighter glamour around those old-timers. Distance lends enchantment to the view. But if they didn't, uh, if they wore a halo, I, we have dispensed with any semblance of ours. And if they didn't find any explanation for their scripture every time, they generally hit on a pretty good application for it. And they believe that God is and that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if they didn't make religion their business as they should have done, they didn't make business their religion as we have done. Some of them were born in the fire and lived in the smoke. But it'd be a lot better to be smoking flax than never to have known the flame from heaven. It's fashionable to pity the past. But any generation that's made as big a mess of everything as this one has has no business cracking jokes about the faith of its fathers. We're not getting along very well in our evolution today. It uh, seems like the uh, uh, protoplasm to perfection business has landed us not in paradise but in pandemonium. You know, you heard a lot about it a few years ago once he was a tadpole beginning to begin. Then he was a frog with his tail tucked in. Then he was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now he's a professor with a Ph.D. <laughs> well, it hasn't worked. Some of those old preachers in my day were pretty austere, but if they were too much like monks, we're too much like monkeys, and we'd better keep our dunce caps for ourselves. They knew where they came from and where they were going, and that's more than most people know today. They didn't trace their origin to sentient jelly on the shoreline of some prehistoric age. They believed that they were more than small crawling masses of impure carbohydrates headed for oblivion. They believed that life was real and life was earnest, and the grave was not the goal. But what matters is if we have come all the way from Kitty Hawk to outer space, what does it matter if we've invaded the moon and can stake out claims on Jupiter if it's all an accident and if life's just a joke of a heartless fate and a hopeless jigsaw puzzle that nobody can put together? We used to sing a simple song that summarizes better than many sermons, the faith that took God at his word. We used to sing to the old-time religion, and it's good enough for me. We said that it was good for the prophet Daniel and for Paul and Simon. They say now that there's a lot of myth in all that, creation stories and myth. And some of the Daniel stories are myths, and the resurrection's a myth. If I believed that, I'd uh, be mystified <laughs> and mistaken and miserable. Higher criticism, of course, hadn't gotten out in the country in those days, reducing the Hebrew children to folklore, and Daniel to an apocalyptic puzzle, and the Philippian jail incident to highly colored exaggeration. The interpreter's Bible hadn't come along yet, the interrupter's Bible, 
had not yet appeared with its uh, dictionary saying, Daniel teaches us the folly of predicting the future, since he tried it and failed. We took the Bible at what it said in those days, and after all, if it's not absolute, it's obsolete. We didn't believe that the creator of the universe was the prisoner of his own walls. We didn't believe the judge of the earth was bound by his own statutes. We believed if he could create lines, he ought to be able to control them, as he did with Daniel. And if he could open buildings for earthquakes for other reasons, he could do so in answer to prayers he did in Philippi. We enjoyed reading about Daniel. You know how the enemies ganged up on him. And they threw him in the lion's den, but old King Darius couldn't sleep that night. It wasn't Daniel that needed Salmonex, it was Darius. He lived in a palace, but he couldn't sleep. He had the choicest tapestries on his bed, but he couldn't sleep. He was the ruler of a mighty empire, but he couldn't sleep. And finally, he just couldn't stand it any longer, and at the crack of dawn, he got down to that lion's den and called over the banisters and said, Is thy God able? And old Daniel said, King, you should have got your night's rest. God sent his angel. I laid my head on the mane of one of these lions, and I'm in great shape this morning. Yes, my God is able. No insomnia there, because God was the watchman of the universe. And when you've got the watchman of the universe looking at you, what are you sitting up for? I had insomnia for two years, and I don't know how I ever lived. It hit me in Iowa one night. I was preaching through Iowa, a night at a place. Went to bed in Creston, couldn't sleep. Next night, couldn't sleep. For two years, I, I don't know how I made out. The Lord delivered me that time, and then when the great sorrow came into my life last year, I thought, oh, now the devil's going to sit on the foot of the bed again, and uh, I'm going to have this same old trouble. And I had a little for a couple of nights. My doctor gave me a bottle of red medicine and a bottle of pills. And he said, they won't hurt you. And I'm not objecting to that. They have their place. You won't misunderstand me. But one night I said, Lord, I'd rather not use that. I'd rather just sleep. You give your beloved sleep, says here in the book. And you know he took mercy on me and I've slept ever since. And that's almost a year ago now. And I'm just like that old bishop who couldn't sleep either. About two in the morning, he got his Bible open. It said, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He said, Lord, if you're sitting up, I'm going to bed. Good night. <laughs> God help you so to companion with the Most High that when bereavement hits you and sickness trouble of all sorts. And this old world wants to know, and they, won't, they don't care much about how well you can preach even. What they want to know is, when you get in the lion's den, is thy God able? And brother, if you can say from the lion's den, yes, he's able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. He's able to make all grace to abound. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all I can ask or think. He's able to subdue all things to himself. He's able to succor them that are tempted. He's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to keep me from falling. I'll say he's able. 
It's good enough for Daniel. And it's good enough for me. It was good enough for Paul and Silas. You know, they visited Philippi, and that demonized girl was converted, and her masters rose in anger, and Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail, prayed down an earthquake. When the gospel hurts the devil's business, there's trouble. You remember those demon-possessed hogs of Gadara drowned themselves, and the hog owners asked Jesus to leave. Paul's preaching in Ephesus, turning people from idols to serve the living God, and the image makers started up an uproar. Something's wrong when a church can exist in a community and the hog owners of iniquity make no protest. There is something wrong somewhere. When people really believe the gospel, they quit patronizing the devil. Every time Paul won a convert, the devil lost the customer. We're not stirring up the devil much today because the devil is still doing business with most of the church members. Too many converts in the church are still the customers of Satan. Ron Dunn said something here yesterday that I've been thinking over again and again since. He said, with all this salt today, why is it that the carcass is falling? Why is this country in such a mess? It ought to make a difference. With all this light, why is there so much darkness? And I don't buy that argument that, well, since we're in the last days, you can't look for much to happen. The Lord's just taken out a few people, and it's going to get worse and worse. Well, I believe that too. But mighty revival in the past, as in the days of uh, John Wesley, started the greatest social progress that uh, England ever knew. We ought to make an impression. And the trouble is today, the souls lost its savor. And too many candles are under the bushel and under the bed. If the church ever recovers the power to break up demonism in the community, it'll bring down the wrath of evil, and the church may land in jail, but she'll learn how to sing in prison, pray down an earthquake. Folks are asking, will the church go underground? Well, she may develop more power underground than she's got above ground these days. We're not going to pray down earthquakes at committee meetings, sipping coffee and reading the minutes of the last meeting. There will be a new outbreak of the old-time religion that will land Daniel in the lion's den and Paul and Silas in jail, but it can stop the mouths of lions and convert the jailer. Then we used to sing, it's good for our fathers. And that makes me think of my father, the old-fashioned kind, who believed that the authority in the home belonged to the parents, and we were inclined to agree with him. <clears throat> he believed in the posterior application of superior force whenever necessary. And in this weird day, Lord help us, when age has surrendered to you, and instead of parents bringing up children, sometimes the children have brought down the parents, I thank God for a father who was on speaking terms with God and on spanking terms with me. He laid a good foundation, and when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew, they couldn't prevail because he built a wall around that the world of flesh and the devil couldn't breach and deposited a sediment of conviction in my soul that has stood me in good stead in all these years since. He used to meet me at the train when I'd come in as a boy preacher from my early trips. And uh, out there he stood by that old model Ford, 
wearing that old blue serge suit that hadn't been pressed since the day he bought it. And I'd go up to him, and the first thing he'd ask would be, how'd you get along? It's been a long time since he's met me. They still have a little old railroad station along that very line right there in Newton, North Carolina. I never go by, but what I think I, in memory's eyes I can see him standing there. But one of these days I'm going to round another curve. When I get into glory, I expect to see him not in that old blue serge suit, but in the robes of glory. Wouldn't be a bit surprised if the first thing you'd say would be, how did you get along? <laughs> and I'm going to say, pretty well. Thank you. And I owe a lot of it to you because you dared to be an old-fashioned father when it was even going out of style then. And it was good for our mothers. Some poet said, I've spent a lifetime seeking things I've spurned when I've found them. I've fought and been rewarded in many a petty cause. But I'd give them all, fame, fortune, and the pleasures that surround them for a little of the faith that made my mother what she was. I never hear people thanking God that their mothers introduced them to cocktail drinking and allowed them to frequent the frolics of liquor and lust. Some mothers who can't think of anything they can do for sons and daughters except help them keep step with a generation of moral imbeciles would spend their midnight hours in prayer papers wouldn't be filled with crime and jails with youthful gangsters. My friend Bev Shea told me the other day his mother passed away recently and he'd been home not long before that back to the old home he said I went to bed and mother 85 years old after I went to bed came in the room just like always with some milk and cookies <laughs> she put them down there on the table and said is there anything else I can do for you Bev said I said mother you've done enough You've been doing all these years. You've been in this. I was in Maranatha Bible Conference in Michigan when I got a telegram saying, your mother's quite ill. And before I got home, she'd gone to glory. The last thing she sent to me, she stood on her crutches beside a crippled brother as they tried to scribble out a letter. She said, tell Vance to keep up the good fight, for God is with you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? I'd rather have a parting word like that from an old-fashioned mother than any legacy that wealth can ever bestow. Then we used to sing Makes Me Love Everybody. We could use several verses of that one today. And in spite of all these efforts to create a better society, the atmosphere is loaded with hatred and suspicion and violence and bitterness. You can't legislate love. Only the love of God shed abroad in our hearts can make men love each other. A spirit-filled American and a spirit-filled Russian will get along. Spirit-filled white man and spirit-filled black man will get along. Spirit-filled employer and employee will get along. Spirit-filled husband and wife will get along. Spirit-filled parents and children will get along. We know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren, and by this shall all men know. You see, we know and they know if we love one another. It's a double badge that identifies a Christian inside and outside. We know, they know. If you don't wear it, you're a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. 
You don't have to wear a big button saying I'm a Christian, carry a Bible around big as I Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> All you got to do is just be one. And if we have love, everybody will find it out. I went to a little old country church in the late 20s. And uh, all I could hear there was about a preacher they had in years gone by named Josiah Elliott. Now, they'd had some preachers who went on to great churches. Didn't hear much about them. But I kept hearing about Josiah Elliott. And finally, my curiosity got the better of me, and I went back to my old friend John Brown, who was a typical farmer, slowest man ever sold, but had time, had time to talk. I went back on the creek where he was plowing. He always had time. We lost a lot of time, in a way. We'd sit all afternoon talking about other things. I should have been visiting. He ought to have been plowing. Next morning, I'd go back. We didn't say good morning. Just took up where we'd left off. <laughs> afternoon. I went back to him that day, and I said, John, all I hear around here is Josiah what was the secret of his grip on this crowd? Where were the hidings of his power? John leaned on the plow handles a little bit, meditated, took his time. And then he said, <coughs> he just loved it. And then he went on plowing. Left me standing there, sort of stranded. And I made my way back through that old cypress swamp that evening while the wood thrush was singing his vespers to the end of a perfect day. And chiming through my heart, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not loved, it profiteth me nothing. I said, Lord, help me to settle down in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Never move out of that place anymore. That's a good place to get located. Then we used to sing, it'll do when I'm dying. Now, who wants to hear about such a gruesome subject as that? I'll tell you, do you know that teenagers today, I heard the other day of a group of them having a discussion on death. They know that all ages face it. And our young people are thinking about things today that a lot of them didn't think about a few years ago to any degree. The other day, one of them was mortally crippled in an automobile accident. And as her mother stood by her bed in the hospital, she said, Mom, you told me how to light a cigarette and how to hold a cocktail glass, but you never told me how to die. Do you know anything about that? It'll do when I'm dying. We still die, and uh, computers won't help us there. In the face of death, I want something better than academic speculation about the survival of personality. That won't do me any good. Console, if you will, I can bear it, is a well-meant alms of breath. But not all the preaching since Adam has made death other than death. But I can tell you somebody who has changed the picture. My Lord came along, and when he walked out of that grave, O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? He got both of them at once. And why should we, through fear of death, be all our lifetime in bondage if he holds the key? And then it says he's going to take us all to heaven. Now the world has laughed at us and called us celestial excursionists and cracked jokes about pie in the sky. And I don't hear many sermons on heaven, but some of us still believe there's a land that's fairer than day. And uh, the best thing about it is Jesus said, if it weren't so, I'd let you know. 
I would have told you. Most of my dear ones live over there now. Population shifted, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I know where they are. Death can hide but not divide. They are but on Christ's other side. They are with Christ and Christ with me, united still in Christ are we. One thing that cheers me up is that Christians never meet for the last time. I don't see much use telling you goodbye. We're going to meet again. When the dearest of all went home a year ago, I developed an affinity for the next world I've never had before. Heaven's never seemed as near. I feel like an amputee who's had an arm removed, but he can still feel his fingers. You know how your nerves play tricks on you. Gone, but not gone. This world's never been less attractive. The next world's never been more attractive to me. And through it all, as you've sung, one sweetly solemn thought comes to me o'er and o'er. I'm nearer to my heavenly home than I've ever been before. Oh, I mentioned Bev Shea a while ago. Last December, I went up to Minneapolis to talk at Billy Graham's birthday or uh, annual supper there. And uh, I preached in First Church on Sunday morning that afternoon. Bev put on a concert, and the place was crowded out, and I was sitting down there about the middle of the crowd. Bev came in the side door, and he knew what I'd been through, and he saw me. Came over, and I rose to meet him, and he hugged me there before everybody and went on up into the pulpit to sing, If we could see beyond today, as God can see. If all the clouds should roll away, the shadows flee. Oh, present grief we would not fret, each sorrow we would soon forget. For many joys are waiting yet for you and me. I'm glad the Lord hasn't told us much about the world to come. We couldn't understand it. It'd be like trying to tell a four-year-old what it means to be a man. We couldn't comprehend it. Somebody said it'd be like a boy trying to eat a bowl of spinach with a chocolate cake on the table. <laughs> now, wouldn't he have a rough time with that spinach? Oh, there is a phrase in Hebrews, that chapter where everybody gets arguing about eternal security and forgets some other good things in it. One of them speaks of tasting the powers of the age to come. Friend, do you know what that means? That means that the trees over there bend over the wall and you can pull off a little of the fruit before you get inside. <laughs> Have you had a little... Oh, there is a phrase in Hebrews, that chapter where everybody gets to arguing about eternal security and forgets some other good things in it. One of them speaks of tasting the powers of the age to come. Friend, do you know what that means? That means that the trees over there bend over the wall and you can pull off a little of the fruit before you get inside. <laughs> Have you had a little preliminary taste? I was over at Midland in First Baptist Church and Dr. O'Brien's all years ago was teaching Job and I talked about this one night and as we started to the hotel room he hadn't said a word and all of a sudden he took off singing that verse out of marching design, and I'll be fair with you, I've sung it all my life, and I hadn't noticed it. We're usually unconscious when we sing. <laughs> the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets. Before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. You realize what that means? You don't have to go through a graveyard to get to some of this. You can have a little sample now. 
When I was a boy, book salesmen used to come through and leave a prospectus, they called it, several pages and pictures out of the sure enough book. Well, it was awfully frustrating. You'd read page 10, the next page would be page 17, and you couldn't get anywhere with it, but it sort of whetted your appetite for the sure enough thing. You see, the crumbs made you want the cake. And by the time that salesman got back, we were ready for the whole book. When Jesus was down here, he left us a prospectus. Few samples in his miracles of what it's going to be like. And brother, I can't wait to get hold of that book one of these days. I've got the earnest of my inheritance now. And I know what old Fanny Crosby meant when she said, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Every time I look in the mirror, <laughs> one verse comes to mind, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. <laughs> but I'm not stopping there. When he shall appear, thank the Lord for that other appearing there. We shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. I'm getting some of the sweetest poems and things from all over the country, and somebody who lost a dear one sent just this little line. There's something very dear about the body our dear one used to wear, still loved, but now no longer usable. It must be laid away with gratitude and with affection, remembered as a suit once thought becoming. Look back upon with no regrets now that our dear one awaits her Easter clothes. Friend, I don't look much now, but you just ought to see me when I get my Easter suit one of these days. And whether I go first or he comes first doesn't matter much to me. I'm not looking for a sign. I've seen enough signs. I'm listening for a shout. That's the next thing on the program. And some people used to say, how could you hear a trumpet blast around the world? They don't say that anymore. Man can blow a trumpet in New York and be heard in Australia. Our eardrums have been shattered by the devilish dissonance of rock and roll around the world. If a man can blow a trumpet loud enough to deafen the living, an arch archangel ought to be able to blow one loud enough to wake up the dead. <laughs> and the next time you see one of these old scoffers Peter wrote about who said there aren't any signs, you've just seen another sign. He's on an animated placard advertising the very thing that he denies. Now, I always enjoyed reading little novels when I was a boy and always started on the back page. Wanted to see how things worked out. Then I'd start at the front and my hero might have a rough time and about halfway through it looked like he'd never make it. But I'd find myself saying under my breath, cheer up, I've known the end from the beginning. <laughs> and sometimes it looked like the devil had it made. But no matter how he strutted, I found myself saying, your goose is cooked. You'll never make it. I've got a Bible with no devil on the first page and no devil on the last page. Thank the Lord for a book that disposes of the devil. Now, Dr. Jack's been telling us all this week, find out what God's thinking and think his thoughts after him and find out what God's doing and do what he's doing and find out where God's going, get going that direction. It may look sometimes like the devil's having his way, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but when it's all over, God will have had it his way. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch.
above his own. Nothing just happens, brother. God makes some things happen and he lets some things happen, but nothing just happens outside his sovereign will. And it looks like sometimes that the purposes of the devil are marching through and we're not getting anywhere much, but when the trip's over, please remember if you're going where God's going, when God gets there, you will be there if you're on the same train. During the war, I uh, remember closing a meeting in Baltimore on Sunday night. It was due to begin in LaSalle, Illinois on Monday night, and the trains weren't running on time. And uh, somebody said, if you were supposed to get there at 7 o'clock and preach at 7.30, you'll never make it. Well, I said, if the Lord wants me to preach then, I think I'll make it. Next morning, I looked across from where I sat on the phone, and over there sat the Secretary of War. Of course, you understand, he didn't know me, but I knew him. I'd seen his picture, and they say a cat can look at a king. So I looked at him. <laughs> and he was on his way to Chicago to make a speech. And I was on my way to LaSalle, Illinois, to start a meeting. And he sent word up to the engineer and said, we've got to make this on time. And friend, we did. We didn't even hesitate most of those times. And I had the time of my life sitting there. I said, now this big shot thinks they're hurrying up the train so he can speak in Chicago. The good Lord's getting me through to LaSalle to start my meeting on time. That's, uh, that's one time I had the government working for me. And friend, if you're on the same train of God's purpose, when he arrives, you'll arrive. And the only way to do it, be sure that deep down in your heart, you have the old-time religion, Christ died for our sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.